0: Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. We interview people in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our clients, patients, and athletes to move more, move better, and move more efficiently. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge and information to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. It's been a while. I could blame it on COVID or other things, but I think one of the things that's important when you do something that you really believe in is sometimes you have to step back, think about it, and think about what you're doing and what your goals are. I was talking about this a little bit with today's guest. The main goal of moving to live is twofold. It's first to tell people's stories because when you hear about somebody in the movement field, you may think that their job is absolutely magical. And it may be, but sometimes to get to the magic, it takes a lot of work, a little bit of luck, and potentially going down the wrong road or two and realizing, I don't know what the heck I was doing. The second reason we do it is we want to promote movement. When you consider... Most people in America and most people in other countries don't move enough. If you can listen to people who move and are passionate about it, and it makes you think or change the way you do it, then it's a success. Like I've said before, sometimes the best way to find guests is you stalk them on social media. Uh, Sometimes you find them other ways. And in this case, I was fortunate enough, today's guest submitted an article to the National Strength and Conditioning Journal, and I was fortunate enough to interview her for a podcast podcast. I was interested in the topic. We had a good conversation, and I'll have to confess, one of the reasons is she's also Australian, and it's very difficult to have a bad podcast interview with an Australian (laughs) because most Americans love the accent. So we're with Dr. Kate Baldwin. She is a physio, which will explain how that differs or how it's similar to a physical therapist, and also a strength coach and endurance coach. Kate, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live.
1: Hi, Ben, or g'day, Ben. Is that better to suit the Australian uh, <laughs> accent? <laughs> I hear that a lot, that people think the Australian accent sounds nice. I, I don't know. I, th- I think it sounds uh, at times maybe a little rough, but we'll go with it.
0: <laughs> My favourite question I always ask every Moving to Live guest, the first question I always ask is what you're in a positive way, 30-second elevator spiel. You get stuck in an elevator, you get stuck on a plane, and somebody says, well, who are you or what do you do? What do you say?
1: So I'm Kate. I'm Aussie. I did my double degree in physiotherapy and sports science and completed my PhD in strength training and endurance athletes. Uh, I work predominantly in the the exercise industry and I treat exercise as medicine. So I'm all about movement as medicine, helping people move, helping people stay strong, stay injury free and get the most out of their sport and their life and, and what they want to achieve.
0: So just in that intro, you've brought up a couple of questions that I'm interested in learning more about, or maybe having my beliefs reinforced. I know here in the United States, a physical therapist is very similar to a physiotherapist in Australia or in Canada. I also know here in the United States, we've gravitated or moved towards the doctoral or the DPT, kind of describe, if you don't mind, in Australia, how does the physiotherapy education or somebody graduates from school and says, you know, I want to be a physiotherapy therapist, what do they have to do for schooling?
1: So to get into physio, I think it's really competitive still in Australia. So when you graduate high school um, I think you still need quite a high it's called an ATAR so a score when you graduate and you can go into it as an undergraduate which I believe is a little bit different from how it's done in America and Canada but I may be may be wrong on that so you can go into it straight from high school and it's a four-year undergraduate degree so there's lots of practical placements so you have to cover musculoskeletal cardio neuro etc so all of your main fields um, I originally just enrolled in physio and then I found out that the uni that I went to did a double degree with sport science and my love of sport science was uh, was there and I was a little bit torn between the two of what to do and then when I found out there was a double degree, I thought, that's perfect. So that's five years to do the double degree. Um, so you can go straight from from high school. Alternatively, there's a master's program that you can do um, here in Australia as well. And from my understanding, that's a three-year degree, so you can do that at post-grad as well. So they're your two sort of main, main options that you can pick.
0: And would I be correct in saying that your physiotherapy practice that you do is a little bit different from what would be, using air quotes, the typical physio practice in Australia?
1: Yes, I think that some are moving more towards as well what what we do, and some some like us do exist, but not many. Ours is so we have a, we had an empty warehouse, so quite a big warehouse, and we decked it out. So we have two uh, consulting rooms, and the rest of it is a gym. So we've got you know three big rigs, leg press, glute ham raise, it a calf raise, pulley machine, kettlebells, dumbbells, everything in there. So often we have people walk in and they sort of walk in and look straight at the gym and go ah. Oh, I don't think I'm in the right place. I'm like, oh no, no, you are. Come in, come in. This is what you will be doing today. <laughs> um, so it's definitely different in that way. Some of my first jobs uh, were really just a treatment room, um, which, you know, in hindsight, uh, you can't fix everyone just in a treat. Well, met many people just in a treatment room. There are still a lot of those um, clinics that that exist, but I think that physio always needs to have that form of exercise rehab involved in it as well. Uh, and a lot of people don't feel super confident in the gym as well. They might not have done a lot of exercise before, so having that private gym area on site is a really good way to encourage people to do exercise. Feel safe in the gym. Feel monitored in the gym as well. So. Um, Yeah, it's definitely not, I guess, what you would traditionally think of a physio clinic to be.
0: And I want to touch on that a little bit more before I get an answer to my second question that your Mm -hmm. elevator spieler introduction brought in. So you graduate, you've got a double major, and then you decide at some point, you know, I want to get a doctorate too. And (laughs) for people who are listening, who are familiar, when you get a PhD, the typical path or for most of us is we go into teaching and education and we do research. It's a little bit different for you. And I'm also curious because I've heard before, I, I actually went to doctoral studies with a couple of Australians. And my understanding is the program for getting a doctoral degree in Australia is a little bit uh, different than the United States. In the United States, we have to take a series of courses and then we have to pass an oral comps and then we get to do our dissertation or our major project. Hopefully, I've done smaller projects prior to that. My understanding yeah. in Australia is it's more research-based as opposed to classroom-based. If, if With your experience, if you could talk about that a little bit, I think that would be interesting.
1: Yeah, um, my my PhD was pretty much um, all research-based, really. So, obviously, you, you come up with a proposal, you present that. That gets uh, reviewed by your external reviewers or some internal ones. But mine was uh, – my PhD was all, all research-based. Um, I did it by publication. So, that was – I find that really, really good experience and good feedback that you get straight away on your work as well. So mine was broken into four four main studies um, and doing that first one and sending that off and getting reviewer feedback I think is really good. It gives you from the get-go um just good feedback onto what the process is like and how research works and what's really required to get a publication in a, in a Q1 journal um, and how you go through rigorous methodology and how you think about things and the problem and you solve them. Um, so it's definitely very, very research-based. That's, that's how I um, I did mine in in terms of masters, uh, you can do that by coursework, depending on what you do, or research. But my my PhD was was all research um, based there, and yeah, by by publication. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a a really good way of doing it. Just exposes you, kind of just throws you in the deep end exposes you to to what the research world is like and especially if you do it by publication like I said you get you get that good feedback from relevant people in your field like the best in your field the people you strive to be like are reviewing your work and giving you feedback on it and um that's that's so invaluable I think that's just incredibly helpful you just have to be really thick-skinned when you do your your PhD and and the research you just have to learn it is what it is all these comments are just for feedback to make you better and you just have to accept that that's that's what it is. You you come out of a PhD with very, very thick skin and the ability to take on board feedback and and not be uh demoralized when when either your supervisors or external reviewers or anyone give you feedback, you just go, look, all of this is going to make me better. This is how you learn. So so that was my experience with it overall was really positive, a lot of work, but really, really positive doing it that way.
0: And what was the impetus to pursue the doctoral degree after getting the double double (laughs) major as an undergraduate?
1: Yeah. So when I graduated, I uh, worked in private practice. I got a job actually through one of my practical placements. um, And I had really high hopes for for this job. You know, being a a new grad, you're all excited to go out and work in the field. I'd studied for five years. I just couldn't wait to get out there. And I was really disappointed in, in my experience. I worked in a private practice where it was Patient in, patient out. I worked seven a.m. to five p.m. or nine a.m. to seven p.m. and uh, every day, every third Saturday. It was it was a lot of work, and in that time, I would see patients in twenty minute blocks. And the way that I work now is it takes me twenty minutes to just build rapport with someone and to go over a history, uh, and sometimes even longer than that, if you you know depending on on the patient the complexity. And so often I would just take the history of the patient, and that would be my session over. And I just I couldn't do anything. in that time. Um, There was a little bit of gym equipment where I was, but a little bit, I mean, I think there was a pulley machine and some dumbbells. Uh, So I would try and do what rehab I could with that. And I would get pulled up by by my boss at the time and told, hey, people pay for your hands-on. People pay for hands-on treatment. Like I would virtually get told off for doing exercise with my patients. And in my mind, I always thought, well, people pay me to Uh, to to get better, (laughs) that's why they're coming to see me and I'm doing uh, whatever means I can to get them better. Sure, there's a place for hands-on treatment. Every now and again, absolutely, I'm I'm not opposed to that, but it's the language that you use around it. It's explaining to people that that's not what's going to fix them, it can help symptoms, um, but, you know, it's the exercise, that's the long-term thing that's going to help a particular injury or a particular chronic disease and to to be told that that was not what... I was meant to do yeah I think really it really played with my mind too because I was a new grad and very easily influenced I guess I wanted to do well I wanted to make my boss happy I didn't want to you know lose my first job so um, I found battle within myself thinking I don't think that what they're telling me is right but I really want to keep my job and they've so much more experience than me they know so much more than me so I stuck this out for um almost a year and in the end it just it really ruined me as a as a physio. I, I hated it. Um, I quit. I resigned. Um, and I didn't know what to do after that because I felt really deflated that, you know, I'd been to uni for five years and I found myself in a profession that just was not what I thought. So... I went back to uni because I had just for a social catch up because I had a lot of lecturers, especially my sports science lecturers that became friends and became good mentors to me. And I talked to two of them and they said to me, like, okay, come back, we'll, we'll help give you some tutoring work and enrol in your research. We know that was of interest to you come back and enrol in that and and give that a crack. And I thought, yeah, I know I wasn't happy uh, in my experience of what I had with private practice physio. So I I enrolled in that and I never looked back. And I'm so grateful for that day that I went in and I talked to to these mentors that I had. I'm so grateful that I put in the hard yards in my undergrad as well and made those good relationships because they were not offered that to, well, I had the marks to to enrol, but um, it was also I think that they, Knew that I was really trying and that I I'd always put in effort. So I'm so grateful for the way that I was in my undergrad as well to help open up that opportunity too. Um, and from there, I loved teaching. I loved working with students. I loved my research. Um, and I was just ten times happier. And I remember thinking, this is this is so much better. And then um, through my research, it kind of led me a little bit back into clinic. But I can I can touch on that later. <laughs>
0: Was there any time during when you went back to uni and you started working uh, on the doctoral degree, was there any time where you're thinking, you know, I, I want to become a full-time professor and I want to teach and I want to leave the clinical yes. as something I did in the past that will kind of slowly sink down the, the level of my Vita as I, as I extend my Vita?
1: Yes. So I definitely thought that all throughout my um, my research, I thought that I think that's what pathway I want to go down um, and then towards the end I did a big 26-week intervention in my PhD with endurance athletes and throughout that I actually ended up doing some physio and exercise um, work from the uni I was doing my PhD from uh, I hired one of their rooms I paid like a weekly uh rent to them and I treated um uh, Athletes I knew through the community um, and just people from word of mouth have come in and see me. So I did treatment, exercise, rehab. I could do physio and sports science how I felt or what's based on the research of how it should be done and sure enough my people were getting better and uh, everyone was it was happy and I was happy my patients were happy word of mouth grew I, I got more and more um patients and I sort of did that as like my my top-up kind of income throughout my PhD and that then made me think oh I love teaching but also my passion for clinical work is really reignited and so then naturally over the duration of my PhD I became sort of half of my time teaching well a third of my time teaching third of my time researching third of my time clinical and then i started to really like that balance once i could find that clinical work that i really liked um i then realized actually i do like this i was just sort of under a bad influence before and not doing it uh, not I, I didn't feel like I was doing what was right with, by the patients then as well and no one wants to do that um so once I sort of more found my way over time I realized you know research and teaching really kept, kept me up to date with literature and what I was then doing in clinic and I think that's also missed a lot so I felt like I was bridging all these gaps because then clinic would also help influence my research and my teaching as well because it would say look yes that sounds great literature how does that actually translate when you try and apply that so I feel like the more balance I had amongst them, then I went, okay, maybe not 100% academic. Maybe I'll have that clinical experience as well, which is what I've ended up with now is a nice balance of them. And I I really like that because I think students also like when I teach that they know that I work in clinic. A lot of my patients like to know that I'm involved in research and teaching, and I think they complement each other really well. So I'm, I'm happy that it sort of naturally found this balance.
0: I think one of the things that the longer you're in the field, if you meet people who are hardcore researchers or you you meet people who are hardcore practitioners, they often forget each needs the other. If we don't have the research to influence how we might do the practice, then the practice is going to become stagnant. On the other hand, if the practice uh, doesn't say, hey, you know, this particular protocol or this way, this is not practical and it doesn't work then the research yep. is, is pretty much useless. And I think sometimes there's a tendency to forget that unless you have people who kind of, I'm not saying this in a negative way, but a positive way, they they keep dabbling in both areas or they kind of straddle the fence.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because there's, um, there's some research showing that it takes about seven years for research to come into practice. And that, to me, is just not good enough. But I do understand that because... You know, like I said, when I was in uh, a clinic working for someone else and I was seeing, I don't even want to think about how many patients I was seeing a day, just too many, there's no way I would have time to then go and look up the latest research and and be able to apply that. It's not the clinician's fault. Uh, It's, you know, they're so overworked, they don't have time. So you can see how it takes that long, but for me luckily being at the forefront of that research and and being around researchers and being teaching the most up to date things it really kept me fresh as a clinician and vice versa so it's definitely a really good balance um, between that, and I think it's it helps both of my sides of it, and I think it stops me sort of getting stagnant in one as well. Um, I tend to get a little bit bored if I do the same thing a lot of times over, so I think it it keeps me relevant in both fields, and it I think that will stop me then going, oh, I'm bored of that. I'm going to change career to this or this. I think it keeps keeps it fresh.
0: I think you said something interesting there. It takes about seven years for the research mm. to come to practice. So just kind of conversational, you know, we're not going to hold you to this, but I'm interested in your thoughts on, with that, we, we've we known for much longer than seven years, the benefits of resistance training or strength training for keeping people mobile and keeping people active. Why do you think there's been the lag on the clinical side? And I know there's been a lag on the clinical side here in the United States and from us chatting prior to starting recording, also in Australia, why do you think there's that clinical lag of not getting more patients instead of the hands-on, you know, the Mm. ultrasound, the hot packs, which is better than it was 15 years ago, but it's still Mm. the idea of actually prescribing resistance training is kind of foreign to many clinicians.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's quite a few things that influence this. So one, I think that some clinicians are not comfortable with prescribing exercise. So, you know, it's that natural, you'll do what you're good at. Um, And maybe I'm that way biased as well. I think I'm really good at prescribing exercise. So maybe I do that more than hands-on treatment because that's what I'm good at. Luckily, the research supports me though and and I I know that it's what I should be doing. So I think that's a big one. I think that um, in a lot of undergrad degrees, there's just not enough um, emphasis on appropriate exercise prescription. So I think that's a big one. And then also... When you look at then continued education courses when people do graduate, there's so many on manual therapy and so little on exercise prescription. So I think that really needs to change. So we need to upskill um, a, a lot of people as well. Like I I feel confident in my exercise prescription because I did a PhD in it. Like, you know, yeah. So you would hope I would feel confident in it, right? But that's because I spent Almost every second of every day researching this. So again, it's nothing with the clinic, I don't certainly don't blame them. It's it's having the time and the access and the ability to to learn that and being dedicated the time so they can upskill and they can learn, they can feel confident. I don't think that a lot of practitioners are given that ample time to do that. Um, I also think that a lot of it stems potentially from sort of um all the healthcare professionals not being on the same wavelength. I've worked with someone before who um, I've worked with her and got her into exercise, into strength training. It was the first time in her life. She was sort of mid-50s. It was the first time in her life strength training. It took a good few, almost a month for her to get really confident. And then she had said to me, Kate, I've never felt more confident in the gym. I feel so happy. I feel strong. And I was like, amazing. And then she went and saw her GP and her GP told her, why are you lifting weights? You shouldn't be lifting weights. And because this was a GP versus a sports scientist or or a physio, people uh, sort of think the GP is more qualified. Yeah, in the medical field, of course they are, but not an exercise prescription. Uh, Physios and sports scientists are a lot more qualified. And so she stopped coming because her GP told her not to. And I have been, I have had so many patients tell me, my doctor said, don't deadlift. It's bad for your back. My doctor said, don't squat. It will put too much compression load through my back. And it's just this uphill battle against misinformation. I think there's a lot of misinformation on social media, which drives me bonkers. Um, its I, I just think there is so much sort of fear around it. And I think people are worried that exercise might make someone a little bit sore or could potentially flare something up. And do you know what? It may but someone having a, a short-term little flare-up from something is a lot better long-term than, than never exercising or never doing strength training. Like the benefits are far going to outweigh it. It's like anything, you know, right, running is great for you, Walking's good for you every now and again. You might slip on a banana peel, I'm not sure. but it, You know, something and have a little flare-up from that. But overall, doing that long-term is really good for you. So I think there are many factors and they really need to keep being worked on. But I think it's a little bit of lack of knowledge, lack of continued education, lack of unison amongst all of the healthcare professionals and spreading all the same information, even though it is readily available, um, nicely summarised in research. I still don't think that it's unison amongst all the healthcare professionals to be on the same wavelength. I also think that for a lot of private practices, and this is coming from someone that owns a private practice, but it's a lot easier for them to make money from getting someone in twice a week to do mass um, ultrasound like you said any of that uh then, then exercise like it's harder to, to sell exercise to someone it involves someone doing hard work and it is hard work so I, I think obviously as a private practice owner some people you know that they, they would they would prefer to take that money like I remember when we set up our clinic who we bought our supplies from called me and said Kate you haven't got an ultrasound machine for treatment or a TENS machine and I laughed and she was like, well, do you want to order one? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't use that. Where's the research to support that? And she was genuinely concerned for me that I was opening a physio and exercise clinic without any form of that kind of modality. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need that. And it was sort of mind-blowing to her that you could run a clinic without it because that's how it's always been run. So yeah, it's uh, it's a, a very complicated thing, I think, that still needs a lot of work to move forwards.
0: And I know from the name of your business, Endurance Movement, the the question I haven't asked that's obvious, are all of your patients, are they all endurance athletes or is it across the spectrum? If somebody finds you, you're willing to work with them if, if you believe exercise will work, which I think we both know is in almost all instances.
1: Absolutely. I've often thought about changing our name because I actually, I think my... I think I work with 50% endurance athletes, 50% general pop. Um, And I love working with general population because you see really big improvements and you see a change in their actual life, in their quality of life. Um, I have a really good relationship with some fantastic sports doctors here who send me not just endurance athletes, just anyone that does physical activity, um, like a lot of chronic low back pain, for example, and I love working with that and seeing really big improvements um in chronic pain in injuries in performance Um, and again I think that's the side of it that sort of keeps it really exciting as I work with a different variety of people and a lot of the time your principles of exercise they don't change they don't change based on um you know the level of your athlete yeah the the weight will but it's still a direct like a percentage for for them it's just you know your elite athlete might lift a little bit more sometimes they lift less Um, so I, I, think it's, it's really actually a bit more 50, 50, um, and some weeks I'll have weeks where I go, Oh, it seems to only be athletes that are booked in. It'll be more of a, a performance based week. And then some weeks I have more clinical population. So, um, it, it really depends, but I love working with, with anyone.
0: I'm reminded with your conversation about your types of patients that you get. I was fortunate enough, uh, a few years ago to tear the labrum of my shoulder And the orthopod who repaired it said, you're going to physical therapy despite your knowledge because I don't trust you not to do something stupid, which in hindsight, this was about 20 years ago. In hindsight, I agree with him. And I remember uh, sneaking a look at the physical therapist notes and the notes for the first day said, should should recover well if he doesn't do too much. Curious (laughs) how the the balance is when you see non-athletes who maybe are not used to your type of physical therapy, who maybe they've done physical therapy before and you come in and you Mm. say, okay, we're going to do this and that. How do you convince them to either A, try it or B, you know, this is a give and take, or this is a teamwork aspect. It's not you come in and lay down on the table for 45 minutes and then walk out. Mm.
1: Yeah. it's. um, I've definitely hit sort of sticking points with people. I remember one person at the end was like, yeah, I said, we're going to do this rehab and we'll do this and this. And she goes, okay, but at the end, massage. And I was like, um, well, I said, look, it might make you feel a little bit better, but long-term it's not going to make a difference. And she was saying, no, 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 but traditional physiotherapy, I always have a massage at the end. I was like, mm, do you know what? If that's what's going to get her exercising short-term, I'll do it. Because it meant it meant that she would come in, she would do her exercises and I will give her a few minutes of massage, and she was happy. And I was like, ah, look, it's it's the trade-off for her to be on board because I think if I had have said no, then she wouldn't have done any of the exercise. So sometimes you have to compromise. But I think that um, explaining things well, backing it up with good evidence-based literature, you know, I don't go into looking at this study with this methodology, but I'll summarise things such as, for example, the GLAD program, um, which is the um, osteoarthritis or so hip and knee replacements, we know that a 12-week exercise intervention can decrease the need to have surgery for hip and knee replacements. Um, and uh, I, I will sort of explain, look, this research has found this. It's very uh, good quality research. How about we give this a try? And I think you explain it really well um, and you really listen to your patient as well and you listen to their goals and you think that exercise is going to help them achieve their goals and you always relate it to them. I think as long as you're you're listening and you're explaining things well, I've I haven't come into too many too many issues with that. Um, it, it's about exercising sensibly, finding out what that person likes as well, because sometimes people don't know that they like exercise or rehab or they don't because they've not done it before. They've always had uh, manual therapy and then you show them some exercises and they go, oh, well, it's not as hard as I thought or, hey, I actually enjoyed that more than I thought and it didn't hurt, so I'm quite happy with that. Um, so I think that as long as you listen to someone who explain something well, you obviously appropriately prescribe your exercise and make it specific to them. There's no reason that people aren't on board. Of course, every now and again, you're going to have people who just don't want to do it, and that's fine. You know, no amount of convincing or educating is going to change their mind, and, and that's okay. Like often I'll just say to them, unfortunately, I'm not sure that I'm the best physio for you. My strengths are an exercise prescription. If you would prefer more hands-on treatment, um, by all means, you know, absolutely perhaps find another Another physio, another practitioner that would be better suited to to the treatment that you're after, and it never ends badly. It's just uh, just going through that process and explaining, making sure that your goal or their goals align with what you can do.
0: And I know at the opposite end of the spectrum, when you work with long distance triathletes or runners or people like that it often is the opposite of that. How do you get them to maybe reduce their activity and Mm. do their rehab, strength training, et cetera, so that a later date they can resume their activity without pain or you see them running down the road and kind of grimace and go, oh, that doesn't look good. So how (laughs) how do you approach the opposite end of the spectrum with the highly motivated? If I tell them to do three sets, they're going to do six sets twice a day.
1: Yes, I, uh, I often tell people, my job is to tell you what not to do. I'm not concerned that you're not going to do your rehab. I know you're going to do your rehab. You're going to do too much. So, again, that comes to a lot of education that says if you just stick this out in the short term when we follow these guidelines, it will get you back uh, quicker. Um, Often... If an endurance athlete is injured, then their their strength training sort of replaces whatever aspect of their training is that they can't do. So that's why they'll tend to do a little bit too much because they feel like they need to bridge that gap. So I often sort of relate it to, look, if if you ended up with the flu or you ended up really unwell, you would have to take a couple of weeks off training anyway to rest and recover. Just take this as this. And I explain it happens to athletes. This happens all the time. It's not going to set you back this is our goals, this is what we're working on, and this is why, um, and we'll really go through it. And again, as long as they understand what they're doing and why they are doing it, often I find they're pretty adherent. And if they don't, they often come back and say, okay, they did too much and I understand now why you told me not to. So sometimes I sort of learn that that little bit harsh way. Um, I find with insurance athletes, it's not so much doing even any more sets, it's they don't have enough rest because they're so used to obviously swimming back in running where there's virtually no rest. So getting them to lift heavier weights and having a three minute rest to them is like whew, mind blowing. So that's often where I have trouble. So I'll say to them, I'm putting the timer on and you're not going until the timer again. So it's just finding those strategies and, and what works for them. Um, and, and yeah, keeping your reins on. And again, educating, explaining, reasoning, listening to them, listening to why are they doing more um, and finding a a middle ground for them so then they're happy as well. So then they'll, they'll trust you and listen.
0: And I know you're kind of different from the typical physio because you also have the strength training background. And I think that can possibly be beneficial for the athletes that you work with because they're more likely to listen to you and understand that your background is not just the rehab person or the strength person. How has your input been or how has your relationship or interaction been with the for lack of a better term old school endurance coaches who believe endurance athletes shouldn't lift for just to throw out an, an old wives tale. Well, I'm a runner, I don't need to lift for my legs because I already work my legs enough.
1: Yeah, there is um there's in particular I think one one quite um prominent coach who's very anti strength training um and only one <laughs> uh yeah i know one that about a million but <laughs> no but you know a real prominent who's a real advocate against it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it really frustrates me and i <sighs> Uh, again, I think my, my kind of way forward on things is is educating um, and explaining things. Like I think that if you explain, look, this is how strength training works. It can improve your musculotendinous stiffness and that you think of that as like an elastic band. The stiffer and stronger that is, the less energy your muscles will use. This will help you perform better and there is good research to back it up. Like, you know, you don't have to... In endurance athlete, strength training is a means to an end. It's not their, their main thing, right? You're focusing on improving rate of force development, improving muscular tenderness, stiffness, all of these things that are going to help them perform better. So I think once you explain that and you explain that the strength training shouldn't negatively impact their overall endurance performance if you schedule it right, if you train them right, if you get the timing of it right, if you make it specific to that athlete. There's no reason it will negatively impact them. It's only going to positively impact them. And I think that a lot of coaches are really open to that. Again, it comes down to them not knowing how to do that but I think that that's great because I also work with a lot of coaches who recognize that and and it's not up to the swim bike run coach to do that their job is swim bike run strength training and endurance athletes whilst it can be simple it's also quite complex because there's a lot of things to consider so I think explaining that letting them outsource it to someone who is a professional in that is really good so again just educating that and again some people that resistance is huge and I think that in some people, it's it's just, I don't know if it'll ever go through to them. You can educate till the cows come home. You can try your best. You can show them the literature. You can explain how it works and the mechanisms. But if they're not going to come on board with it, you know, you can talk to the athletes as well. I think at the end of the day, the athletes need to take control, make a decision for themselves, which a lot of them do, which is fantastic. But Everyone has their different coaching philosophies, um, rightly or wrongly, you know, that's that's what it is. And I think that sometimes you just have to say, I'm not going to waste my time and energy. I've done what I can. I've put it out there. <sighs> There's nothing more you can do, you know. So I, I think just, again, it comes down to that educating um, and making it specific to, to the coach or to those athletes. And if that doesn't work... <sighs> I hope that their athletes change to someone who does (laughs) play.
0: Very, very well put. We're talking with Kate Baldwin. She is a physical therapist, physiotherapist, excuse me, and endurance coach kind of expanding on the resistance training and endurance activities. You've got really two groups of endurance, three groups of endurance athletes in the world. You've got those elite athletes who are making their living at it. People like your husband, You've got the high-level age group athletes who either maybe will move on, or maybe they were collegiate swimmers or collegiate runners, and they still have those competitive juices. And in some cases, they may do even better than some of the elite athletes. And then you have the typical, for lack of a better term, the age groupers—the people who enjoy the participation or they're uh, participating because you know they they enjoy they enjoy doing the activities or the travel to the races. And one of the things we have here in the US where uh, just starting spring and people are in their beginning of their marathon phases. And one of the things we've seen, and I don't know this this has happened in Australia, but one of the things over the past 10, 15 years or so is various team and training where people run to raise money for charities. And mm-hmm. what it has a tendency to do is it has a tendency to attract people who maybe Otherwise would not take on an Ironman distance triathlon or take on a marathon or, or even take on a half marathon, but because they're emotionally vested in it, because maybe they're raising money for a certain disease, they lost a friend or loved one as a professional. If you see one of these people early on in the phase and they've become injured because they've immediately overloaded because they're basically following a cookie cutter program, what are your, what are some recommendations or advice if somebody's listening to this and they're going, you know, I'm hurting every time I run, and I know this shouldn't happen. What can they do? Because I think a lot of this is similar to the physical therapist or the physiotherapist who doesn't do the resistance training uh, as a prescription. They just don't know. You know, they're just like, oh, I, I can run a marathon. Mm-hmm. They said, here's a here's a twelve week program, and I can run a marathon from couch to uh, finisher.
1: Yeah. And I think uh Ben what you said now, it's just it's it's just they don't know because the information's not sort of readily available. There's so much conflicting information. But often when people sign up for events like this and they get injured, they just do too much too quickly and do it too fast. And that's the most common thing. Um so my advice to them would be Slow down. (laughs) Don't do your runs all too fast or your bikes all too fast or your swims all too fast. Um, I do quite like the 80-20 kind of rule, even 90-10. So that means like 80 or 90% of your training, easy, really easy, conversation pace. If you're just starting out and this is your first event and your goal is is to finish, just make sure that you finish. Um, I think it was Emma Snowseal who said you're better off, you know, like 90% overcooked than 1%, uh, sorry, undercooked than 1% overcooked. And it's so true like you won't be able to finish the race if you're injured so you're better off building up the fitness that you need to finish and to achieve your goal and to raise that money and do that for the fantastic reason that they've signed up for it for so and also they probably train like me for enjoyment and training is so much more enjoyable if you can do it with someone and run and chat <laughs> be able to talk to someone on your bike ride so keep generally 80 to 90 percent of that training just nice and easy add your intervals in because you do need some of those physiological changes absolutely but again something um you know that's not too crazy and only if they feel like they can put in that effort um and that applies for their swim bike and run and then that, that strength training will also be that thing to help build up their body's ability their bones their tendons their muscles to actually tolerate the load especially as that load does increase so it's Go easier, do a little bit less, and progress it just a little bit less. Our bodies are very good at telling us if we're tired or fatigued. or And, you know, that's, that is normal when you're doing some endurance training. But if you're finding yourself going, I'm so tired, I just don't want to go for this run, it's probably not the best idea or dial back the intensity if you do decide to go for that run. So, um, yeah, take it. Just dial it back and enjoy the ride. Get strong and be smart. <laughs>
0: We were chatting a little bit before we started recording about social media. And I think the advice that you gave is probably contraindicated by, I'm not even going to say the percentage, but if you pull up various social media feeds, you can read about people crushing it
1: and Mm. and doing too
0: much. And I think the advice that you're giving is number one for the enjoyment, number two for the health. I'm reminded I was talking to my girlfriend a few days ago. When I was uh, in my doctoral studies, I decided that you know I wanted to do an Ironman distance triathlon. And in my everlasting wisdom, I thought, well, if I have to run a marathon at the end of this, it would make sense to do an, an ultra run the year before. So I trained for a 46 mile trail run, figuring if I could run 46 miles, a marathon wouldn't be that bad. And I remember as I trained, and I don't know if this was just the innate uh, survival instinct, but I had three goals. I wanted to finish. I wanted to finish in daylight. It was being held in November, and I really didn't want to run on trails in the dark. And I didn't want to have a life-altering experience, you know, where I crawled in with uh, my muscles twitching and spittle running down my face. And what I realized when I did that and and then uh, trained with a friend of mine for the Ironman the next year is the enjoyment isn't so much the race. It's the being out there, as you said, with friends and talking in the conversation And my friend, when he finished the Ironman, he's standing there after the race. He goes, well, that was fun. It wasn't life altering. I like the training more. And I think people miss that movement and the enjoyment of, you know, rather than meeting for a beer, not that that's ever a bad thing, but rather saying, you know, we're going to meet at six in the morning and and do a 5k jog. I, I think that's the thing that we're missing out if we want people to move and we want people to enhance their quality of life.
1: And I, and I also think that people forget that that is associated with performance. If you are out there consistently enjoying training and you're training at the right intensities and you are loving it, you will train more consistently. You will be injury-free. You will be in a better mindset. We know. That stress strongly influences injuries and chronic diseases and and all sorts of things. It slows down recovery. So if you if your event becomes a stressful thing for you and training becomes stressful, you're going to put yourself at higher risk of injury. And and you're a smack bang, all right, Ben. Like there is there is so much misinformation on social media, or people only post their really high intensity sessions, or people only follow professionals. It's very different training at that level because yes. I'm sure lots of them still do it for enjoyment. They probably wouldn't do it if they didn't. But also prize money is on the line. That's their livelihood. That's their career. They have to dig deep. They have to hurt themselves. They not not physically injure. I mean like training is hard, at hurting. Um, but that is their job. That's how they make money. That's how they bring money home to the family. When you are doing this more for enjoyment, now some people obviously enjoy that. Absolutely. Like I said for you know, twenty percent of your training, go for it. Those sessions do feel really good too, but you don't have to have every session hurting or every session being like this, you will put yourself at risk of injury. You will stress yourself out. It won't become enjoyable and you just won't perform. Um, And same as a coaching relationship to an athlete as well or any advice that you'll put in, it should come from a trusting source. It shouldn't, your coach shouldn't be standing on the sidelines just dictating this and why didn't you make that set? Why didn't you make that leave time? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? That's not how you get extra percent now. And I think this is a really old school kind of philosophy on coaching like and look maybe some athletes respond to that yes but also some athletes respond to a coach that they just trust and that they get they still get that same extra percent because the coach is on the sidelines motivating them saying you missed that one I know you can do this on the next one trust me you can do it and they'll hit the same thing the same as a way as a coach that might be a lot more savage like I think that this shift does need to happen, um, especially in recreational athletes. Like my first Ironman, I just had so much fun. I remember starting on the sideline and and I wanted to qualify for the corner. That was my goal. Like I wanted to have fun, but I wanted to do well. And I knew I'd done the right training to do well. And I just remember starting on the sidelines and thinking, I am so excited. I'm going to enjoy every moment of this. I'm never going to get my first Ironman back. Let's just go out and have fun. And I did, and I loved it, and and I qualified for Kona. Kind of. I did a great time. I had the best time ever, and I really think that I did so well because I had that mentality of, like, I mean, there were times where I didn't enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. You're saddle discomfort after 100 and so on the bike no one no one has fun with that like I wasn't riding around happy mcgee 24 7 but you know overall it was a really positive experience and when it hurt you go it doesn't matter it's my first one I'm just I'm here it's okay let's embrace it and I think you can do that and do well um you know regardless of your level and I think that sometimes when you're caught up in social media and only seeing really tough sessions because they look good, right, and they get a lot of social media likes and a lot of lead athletes depend on social media for sponsorship. So that's what you're exposed to as an athlete. They're not going to post, today I did a two-hour ride at 60% of my power at VO2max and that was fun because that's not interesting, right, it's not as exciting. So you don't tend to see that side of it and I think that it's really, it's not exciting, it's not fun. So this kind of stuff gets missed and um, and that's where I think it trips a lot of people up.
0: We've been talking with kate baldwin i suspect i'm going to ask her to be on at a later date to talk more about strength and conditioning also but i think it's a good time to end because i think the comments that she's made number one it should be fun and number two i'm probably paraphrasing here but when in doubt go easier is going to go yes. much better for the long term kate i want to thank you for taking time to talk to moving to live I suspected when I interviewed you for the Strength and Conditioning Journal, we'd have a good conversation. And I think this is, especially here in the US with marathon season starting up and early season triathletes, people can listen and realize it's supposed to be fun and it should be a stress or a good stress, not a distress. If it's a distress, maybe ask yourself, is it me? Is it my coach? Is it maybe there's a too many other things going on in my life that I, maybe this isn't the best time to do it because... I think as we've all learned with COVID, there's always going to be another Ironman. There's always going to be another marathon, and the goal is to do basically uh, as many as possible or as long as possible. I've had the good fortune to interview a gentleman named Don Moxley, and his goal is twenty years from now to do a hundred-mile bike ride near a, a town where he grew up, just like he currently does. So, Kate, thank you for taking time to talk to moving to live.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Always, always enjoy chatting to you, Ben. It's great.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about moving to live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH emphasizes movement in the Pittsburgh area and beyond with video podcasts, movement ideas, and interviews with people in the Pittsburgh area who understand movement is part of what makes life complete. Until next time, keep on moving.